right. What's splashing? Welcome to season five, episode six of Siren Sundays with me, your host, Lashanti the Siren. This show is focused on speaking with researchers, scientists, and practitioners of environmental science and all things conservation. You are now tuning in for our conservation conversation. And today's guest is Bradley Watson, a very familiar phrase. How are you, Bradley? I'm okay. I'm okay. It's great to be here. I know it's just super late there. Um, I know the time difference is huge. And we had the same issue last week with Amina. Big five-hour difference. But so glad that you can join us on your lovely Sunday evening. Yeah, We have some hellos from the crowd, uh, some faithful viewers. Hello, hello, everyone. And let's just dive right in. Um, You can start off with introducing yourself again. I know people have seen you on the show before, but feel free to do it again. Let us know who you are and what do you do. My name is Bradley Watson. Um, I am a an environmental scientist who is now going into sustainable development, and so uh, it's a fairly new field. Uh, I my undergrad work was in biology. My first master's degree was in plant ecology, and uh, in that work, I actually focused on ecosystem services pretty strongly. And so, um, for everybody to understand, an ecosystem service is you know how humans view the benefits or the value of a, of a, of a natural system. So uh, when we think about mangroves, we think about protection from storm damage. We think about carbon storage. We think about nurseries for fish. Um, in my master's degree, I was in the Midwest of the US. And so we were thinking about, you know, how much productivity you can get out of a grassland and how much carbon we would store in the soils of that grassland, depending on how you manage it. And so that was where my thinking kind of, uh, I kind of was able to frame questions about biology from a human perspective, which is very much what sustainable development uh, is geared towards, uh, at least presently it is. And so I applied for a Shevening Scholarship um, through uh, the UK government and was awarded this scholarship to study here for a year at St. Andrews University in Scotland. And it's really given me a chance to kind of uh, put together these ideas about how human systems and ecological systems or natural systems work together. Um, And what's interesting is that now that I'm able to focus on sustainable development directly, you're noticing the the changes in the dialogue. And so now we're thinking about, you know, beyond ecosystem services, what is the value of nature? What really is nature? Uh, One of the interesting concepts of sustainable development right now is thinking that there are not really many natural systems left. you think about the influence that humans have on the environment and the fact that we're now in the quote unquote Anthropocene. So, mm-hmm. you know, um, the Anthropocene is, a, is, is the period of time where humans have had um, the greatest impact on the environment uh, um, compared to all other species. And so there's some ideas that the Anthropocene began the minute we began agriculture. And uh, that was when we began influencing the environment. And so, you know, that's, that's what I do now. Um, and I'm looking forward to figuring out how to integrate some of these thoughts about how to develop a sustainable economy, a sustainable society, um, focused on the environment, uh, especially in light of the universe's uh, recognition of the value of the environment, especially you know, just coming out of COP26. Somehow these discussions have been kind of siloed previously, but you know, at present time, the entire community uh, on the face of our planet is recognizing the value of, of this work. So. That's what I'm doing now, uh, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting home and, and putting some feet on the ground. Awesome. And I am definitely hearing that I'm having some technical difficulties on my end, which is super unfortunate. Apparently, my screen is black. I don't know if you can see me, Bradley. No, I'm sorry. I can't. Oh, okay. So what I'm going to do is keep the ball rolling. So when I ask you your next question, I'm going to hop off and hop back on. But if you can just, um, you said you're at St. Andrews right now studying. What did you say your, your master's is in? sustainable development. Right. So you also mentioned going to COP26. Do you have any takeaways from that? Like anything personal or things that you think would be good for your life or just for the Bahamas in general? But before you do that, explain what COP26 is for our viewers. Okay, okay. Um, so COP26, the, the meeting of the Conference of Parties of the UN, uh, it happens on an annual basis. Uh, the bigger ones are every five years. Um, and so you would hear about the Kyoto Protocol or um, the, the Rio meeting or the Paris Agreement. And these are all meetings of the Conference of Parties of the UN. And so, you know, the most recent really big one was the Paris Agreement. And in that agreement, uh, there were a lot of uh, 
statements made or, or, or you know, ideas that were formalized through um, a document that all of the, the, the parties signed and ratified, right? And so you have this Paris Agreement, one of the key points in there um, is Article 6. It talks about compensation for carbon emissions. Uh, in addition, you know, out of the COP meetings, we have this idea of uh, an NDC, uh, a nationally determined contribution. And the last big thing that was discussed at COP26 was um, the Warsaw Convention on Loss and Damage. Mm -hmm. And so we could go into this and, and talk more about what those things are, because my key takeaway from COP26 was that um, we really need to make the Bahamas a part of this conversation. And the only way to do that is to empower as many young Bahamians as possible to enter these rooms because COP26 was, you know, a, a massive meeting and it was very easy for you to lose yourself in what's happening around you if you don't really understand how can you apply pressure in the right places to advance the goals um, that you know are right, you know? So how do you represent the Bahamas in this global arena where uh, there's all these other entities that are vying for, for their say? Uh, and the only way to do that is, is through education of our population. And so coming out of COP26, um, going in actually, um, Rochelle Newbold, the director of uh, Dep Department of Environmental Planning and Protection at the time, mm -hmm. she gave me the mandate that my job was to get together some Caribbean youth uh, and, and understand what the situation was and develop this uh, regional conference that we're going to host in Nassau in July. And so this yes. is an ongoing thing that we've been working on. And, and that's the thing about COPS. You know, we've had young Bahamians like Charles Hamilton, like Teran Sims, like Nikita Shield-Roll, who've attended these events and have been representing us on the world stage. And so now it's, it's a continuation. And so it really has to be a strong core group of Bahamian environmentalists, but not just environmentalists, social scientists. Um, for example, I was on the bus, you know, going, it's a shuttle going into COP, and I saw a face that seemed very familiar. And I went and sat down next to her, and it, it was Alicia Wallace. And I was like, we went to oh. Kingsway together. You know, I'm yeah. friends with your little brother. Um, yeah. <laughs> and now here. What are you doing? And, and she was there representing for women's rights. And she was actually presenting um, at a panel that day. And so it's really important that we give our a youth a place to stand on, some, some foundation, and then also facilitate their flight. You know, we don't know what they're going to do after they leave this country. Um, what was interesting was that there were some countries that had enlisted um, consultants to represent them. Uh, but the Bahamas, we actually had enough skill, in my opinion. You have Adele Thomas, um, you have Shanique Aubrey, um, you have our own prime minister who came in. And so... We had you. And you had myself as well, <laughs> yes. So, so, so whereas, you know, you, you could have a country that is not able to really represent itself and articulate itself, itself in this, these spaces, um, we are almost there, but we have to keep this going. And so, for example, one of my big challenges was understanding how policy documents work and reading them and understanding what are the outgrowths that are going to come from this? What is this setting us up for for the next year? So COP26 is where, and in addition, oftentimes these negotiations happen beforehand and you walk in the room and things have already been set in place. And so you're thinking about the big players making these commitments to reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. And those are the things that set us up for selling carbon credits, for example, because I can elaborate on that um, in a second, but uh, you have to think about this is where the top level decisions are made. And then you need to have people who are aware of these changes and are, are literate of this policy so that we can now determine our way forward and navigate through these policies to achieve the best outcome for the Bahamas possible. And then also as a region, because the other cool thing about COP is that um, as small island developing states, we operate as a block through mm -hmm. this group called AOSIS. Um, and so AOSIS is, <clears throat> it's a group of small island developing states. This year it was headed by Antigua and Barbuda and they represent our opinions in these spaces. So when uh, Dr. Thomas or Director Newbold or Charles had information to, to add into this policy document about disagreement on loss and damages, it was all funneled through EOSIS. And through this block is how we articulate our perspectives. And what's important is that we must recognize as the Bahamas that we, we have friends in this in this fight. 
and our voice is much louder if we speak in a chorus, if we speak together. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing is that we need to have payments professionals integrated into all of these systems so that you know we can move this thing forward as quickly as possible because you know we, we are really running out of time. I'll give one more anecdote I'm about COP. There was a meeting of of youth from small island developing states called um and a representative of the un was there to head the meeting and give us some advice mm -hmm. and walking into the meeting luckily i had been called into this meeting because i had made connections with other caribbean youth who said you know bradley this is happening let's go here mm -hmm. uh, so it's extremely important for us to develop our networks around this region uh, yeah. and this individual said you know we introduced the idea of 1.5 to stay alive you know, years ago, maybe eight years ago. And we've been fighting for them to recognize 1.5 to stay alive all this time. And can you explain um, what that is? I know I know what it is. And I always chuckle when I hear it. But can you say, you know, what is that 1.25 to 1.25 to stay alive? 1.5 to stay alive is saying, yeah, exactly. It's saying that, uh, you know, if, if global warming exceeds 1.5 degrees Celsius, um, the Bahamas and other small island developing states and coastal regions around the world will not be able to live the way we live. Mm -hmm. um, and you're thinking about fisheries resources, you're thinking about hurricanes, you're thinking about, you know, what's another crazy one that, that that's aware that I became aware of? Which one? We're gonna need to change our labor laws eventually if climate change continues at the pace it does because people are working outside under weather conditions that are mm -hmm. much different than what our labor laws were made under. So- Listen, that heat is real. Work. Think about when do you take breaks? Yeah. You know, these are considerations not just for the Bahamas, for, but for places like Kuwait, places, you know, where their temperature fluctuations are more extreme, but mm -hmm. it's all coming downstream. We have to, there's a multitude of things that climate change are going to affect. And if we don't educate payment professionals to be aware of this, we will be receiving information as opposed to creating information. And, and we have the potential to create information and set standards for the future because we feel this pain the most. Yes. And so that's why we really need to lean into having representation there. So uh, in this meeting, hearing this gentleman say 1.5 to stay alive was something that they've been fighting for for years. Mm -hmm. it, it made me feel more comfortable with the situation because in my mind, 1.5 to stay alive is, I shouldn't say this out loud, but we're very close to 1.5. You know, it's very difficult for us to actually make 1.5 to stay alive work. And so we have to fight. And it's it's like if we don't start fighting for the next win now we won't have a win in the next 10 years yeah you know we have to figure out how to do this we have to figure out how to make our voices heard and present these opinions in these spaces and it's in the manner that they are received properly received there's yeah. a protocol for how these discussions work mm -hmm. there's a way for you to make things happen and you have to learn that and so what amazed me was that there were individuals, young people, I think he was 33 years old. He told me this was his seventh cop. And I was blown away. I was like, so that's why you understand the system so well. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's crazy for us to, to expect ourselves to be able to compete when we're at the disadvantage of, of inexperience. Right. Yeah. And so it's very, that's why I'm so excited. We're having a conference in July, mm -hmm. make these issues known to the young Bahamians who are able to invest their careers in this sort of work because it's not going to be one cop it's not going to be two cops it's going to be the next 20 years of advocating and researching and finding ways for us to live the lives that we deserve to live that's true and you know in, in a lot of my episodes the topic of climate change of course is a very popular one um, it's a very important one and it's, it's almost one of those things where and i love that lately i've been referencing the movie uh don't look up but Climate, um, climate change professionals, scientists, conservationists, we've kind of been, you know, we've been shouting for so long. And I think what we've been doing wrong. <laughs> I just needed to clean my screen, my thing, because I, I was fuzzy. It was, it was just, it was supposed to be very smooth. You were fine. <laughs> I'm so Always a good time with Bradley Watson. Um, but right, so one of the things that we've been not doing well is communicating this information because the information only makes sense to each to us, right? To each other. And I think lately we've been starting to find ways to appeal to the public, to appeal to the people who don't understand, like as simple as that 1.5 to stay alive. 
I knew what you meant, but a lot of people have no idea, no idea what that means. Or even like when you say that 1.5 degrees on a, you know, we do Fahrenheit in the Bahamas, which I really think we should get on this Celsius train, but 1.5 degrees Celsius does not seem like a lot because it just sounds like such a small increment, but on a global scale, on a climate scale, it's huge. It is huge for us. And we think that we have so much time, but time is only passing and it's only getting worse. And, and as you said, the Bahamas is a country that is affected so much by this and not a major contributor to the problem. We really need to to be the one sounding the alarm for this and, and making sure that other countries understand like, hey, we're here, we're people, we're being affected and you guys need to chill out. <laughs> you know what freaked me out today? Um, what? I was I was cooking some food and I listened to the podcast, right? right? And I just plug in like <laughs> This American Life, you know, check out, you know, not doing anything related to work. And they started talking about climate change. And I was like, no way, there's nowhere to hide. So. They're talking about this area in California that was on the coastline. And this lady was sleeping at night. And when she woke up, she looked out her window. Her, her house was on a cliff, right? On a, But it had maybe about 30 feet between the edge of the cliff and like her home, right? And this was an area that was zoned and she was allowed to live here and all of that. And when she woke up, her backyard was gone. She had to go further into her house and look out of the window at her home and could she see that the edge of her home was literally hanging. There was no earth beneath it. Oh and gosh. it was because as sea levels rise, you know, what they had planned for erosion, what sort of erosion they expected to happen, because sea levels are rising, because there's more wave action and stronger storms and El Nino effects, the cliff was moving. And so her whole neighborhood was now threatened with this thing, what they call it a managed retreat, right? And so they have to yeah. now over a period of maybe 50 years, figure out how do we Number one, find the money to pay for these people's homes because you don't want to take somebody's property away from them. That's a lifetime yeah. investment. You know, where do that does that person go to live? Um, and and what do you do with the home? How do you get rid of? Do you just let the house fall in the in the ocean? I was so, just gonna say. And so I'm just it, it made me realize you know this is universe this is around the world this is mm -hmm. and if we are not paying attention the. <clears throat> the ways to cope with this are going to move ahead of us. We're going to lose the headway. So when you think about countries that are at the forefront of adaptation to climate change, you think about, or at least in using international mechanisms to adapt to climate change. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> the point of the, today is supposed to talk about the blue economy, right? Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> we, always, we always do that, but that's okay. <laughs> Because I do have a comment before we talk about the blue economy. So you can like have yeah. that, you know, because we're talking about, you know, globally what's happening with sustainable development and what's happening with adaptation to climate change through the economy. And so I like to look at other instances so we can figure out what the state of the art is, what, what's the what's the next thing to do, and then figure out how do we apply that to home using the information we have from home, because our situation mm -hmm. is always going to be different. So, right, but not not so different, right? Because, uh, like I said, I wanted to touch on that cliff story you just said. People, we seem like, oh, we're low lying islands. People have done like the the Earth scans. If you move all the water, we're also sitting on a cliff. So who's to say we won't erode so much that your little house with your beach front all of a sudden your back? I don't want to say your back front. What I'm talking about? Your back of your house is now in the water out of nowhere. You wake up one day and you will literally think that you had like a 10 mile spread of beach and now all of a sudden the beach is right at your back door because this is how serious some of this erosion might just be for us. Geologists correct me if I'm wrong, but this is my comparison. Bring it home. And it also makes me think about information, right? So um, why wasn't this something that the you know municipal planners were aware of? Was mm -hmm. it because they didn't have the funding to go out and do a survey or they didn't really lean into their understanding of climate change? They but that could have been a life they loss. They had more time. They probably thought and they had more time. We, so, it, yeah, it's it's all it's all of this. And, you know, some of the really important work that's happening at home right now is invested in <clears throat> adapting our healthcare systems to climate change. And uh, I'm meeting more and more Bahamian professionals who are really leaning into that work. And it, it amazes me some of the things that we should consider because we only think about hurricanes, but what are the other challenges? Um, mm -hmm. You know, you have uh, Charles Hamilton, you have uh, William Hamilton, Dr. William Hamilton mentioned, you know, how we really need to consider the volcano eruptions the other day that impacted Barbados, 
the volcano did not erupt in Barbados, but they had to deal with the smog. They had to deal with the concerns about air quality. Um, so you really need, we have to, we have to open our minds completely and every individual should be considering climate change in their work. Um, right. So blue economy maybe or no? So we have two questions and then yes, we're going to dive right into blue economy. Okay. Uh, this, these questions come from my wonderful aunt Denise. Does the 1.5 gauge as a goal fluctuate in winter or summer seasons? Good question. Talking on average, we're talking about average temperatures, right? And <clears throat> um, you know, some places are expected to feel these temperature increases more than other places. Uh, but when I think about 1.5, what I really think about is how much energy that must be, right? So that 1.5 is generated by carbon dioxide molecules in our atmosphere that are absorbing extra uh, energy from the sun and holding that energy because there's more carbon dioxide in our atmosphere than there was before. So previously, we'd have the sun hitting the atmosphere, heating up these carbon dioxide molecules, um, and then they they excite, they get excited and they shake, and then they radiate energy. And that energy is radiated back to the earth, right? And that is the greenhouse effect. That is the difference between earth and uh, Mercury or earth and Mars. It, it's why, our planet is able to sustain us, why we could live here. Because otherwise, if there was no carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, no atmosphere, the earth would be too cold for us to live on. So we need the greenhouse effect. It's been there all this time. But what mm -hmm. we've done is we've added so much carbon dioxide as well as methane to and other gases. Um, <clears throat> in addition, water is also a greenhouse gas. And there's like a, you know, a, the snowball going down the hill, collecting all of this energy. So you're thinking about that 1.5, but you're thinking about how much energy does it take to raise the temperature of the whole earth by 1.5 degrees celsius and that oh, energy yeah. is stored in this extra carbon dioxide and methane in the atmosphere that's just shaking and holding this energy and then radiating it back so mm -hmm. how do we cool that 1.5 degrees heating drop the a big ice cube earth? into the water pardon me yeah. drop a big ice cube into the water i think that was on the simpsons i think they're always on to something <laughs> well and that's the other thing so, you know, when we talk about this blue economy, I'm going to touch on some other points because we have to be at the we have to be at the very cutting edge of technology in the Bahamas if we want to really make the most of our future. Mm -hmm. And so the other thing that is really in discussion in the public mind right now is direct air capture. So direct, um, direct air capture. Um, air capture. Okay. Mm -hmm. So let's go through the, 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 the blue economy and then we'll segue yes. into um, carbon credits and, and the carbon cycle and how the Bahamas is involved in that. And then we'll go on to uh, the next the next steps, the next way for us this to This is your show. Forward. Go for it. <laughs> I just wanted to say, I just, this is what I was prepared to say. <laughs> there you go. What is the blue economy? Um, blue economy. <laughs> You're unprepared. <laughs> Please don't make it any worse. <laughs> I'm challenged. It's it's the fact. It's a fact. I know. It's um, late there, guys. Forgive him. He is on the other side of the world. He's across the pond. There's a five-hour time difference. He's an old man. It's way past his bedtime. Yeah, you know. Really? No grays, but he's old. No, I mean, that's because this camera is, is, is my friend. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so blue economy, blue right? Economy? Yes. <laughs> um, the Bahamas. Think about this. We've had a blue economy the whole time. Our economy has been blue all this time because it's about the marine economy it's about we get our livelihoods from sun sand and sea uh whether it's you know tourists or it's fisheries and then our other um industry is finance which is ironic when you start thinking about how finance plays into this blue economy <clears throat> so if we go all the way back you know they argued that humans were an aquatic species and that we were always along coastlines making our living off of the ocean now we have a Bahamian economy that is is rooted in this coastal zone and we need to figure out how to make it more sustainable, more environmentally friendly and more socially friendly, right? So sustainable development, we think about people, we think about planet, we think about productivity, right? So the people we're serving as the Bahamians, pardon me? Three P's: people, planet, mm -hmm. productivity. You, you got seven mm -hmm. going there. <laughs> uh, don't 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 give me the credit for that one. That one uh, that's definitely the UN. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, okay. But of uh, so but excited. it's important because you're thinking about this blue economy, people, planet, productivity, mm -hmm. and it used to be 
investments in shipping vessels would be mm-hmm. a way to invest in the blue economy. And that's 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 workable, right? Yeah. But you had the Seychelles come out with this blue bond that they did. And they did this blue bond through what's called a debt for nature swap, right? So the Seychelles are a group of islands very similar to the Bahamas in that their economy is really based on, you know, the coastline, tourism and fisheries. Yes. And one of my you know, go-to places. I want to travel there one day. One day. One day. And uh, so <clears throat> you have these islands. And under the strain of uh, debt, right? So this international debt that, we, that a lot of these uh, small island developing states, we all carry this debt. And one way to compensate for that debt was to do a debt for nature swap, right? Okay. And so a debt for nature swap is one of the more established ways that you get financing for these sustainability initiatives. Um, and so you would take an area, you would promise that you were gonna uh, use it for conservation and in, in exchange, um, an international funding agency like the IMF or the World Bank or um, the Nature Conservancy also participates in these debt for nature swaps and facilitates a lot of them. Okay. Um, they have a lot of capital that they're able to lean in with, right? So the Seychelles did this blue bond. Um, they raised $15 million. And usually when a country offers a bond, it's a guaranteed investment. So you, you, you you're, there's a country that's a sovereign nation and depending on their credit rating, you know, you're guaranteed to get this funding back. Whereas a stock, you're looking for more of a return. A bond is more like, you know, we're sticking around inflation. We're going to get you these funds. And with an impact investment, like this blue bond, impact investing is when you are now investing with a purpose. It's not just about making a profit. It's about making a change. Mm-hmm. And so you had, I think, 5 million came from TNC, the Nature Conservancy. 5 million came from, I think, the World Bank or the IMF. And then they raised 5 million in the in the capital markets right in 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 the Mm. private markets right so people were able to invest in this blue bond do something good with their money and have a guaranteed return partially because you already have 10 million of the bond was already sold out um by these reliable companies Mm -hmm. now what the seychelles did with with that money was they put it into this trust fund and this trust fund was now managed and the funds were given out to companies that were developing industry in the blue economy so you know sustainable fisheries um and work like that sustainable tourism but there was also funds allocated for social programs within the blue economy so you know looking at uh improving education for the children of these fishers right um and so this is a really cool way that they they put together this program to access capital from outside of the country to facilitate development within country So that's one way that you can get the startup funding to, to to make your blue economy more sustainable then there was this paper that came out and after COP, I was reading this paper and I was writing an assignment for school and I was just like, man, this paper is written for the Bahamas. Like who wrote this? You know, I didn't, I hadn't looked at the author before I read it. And I look at the author and I'm just like, oh no, it's Adele Thomas. Like, of course it's written for the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> of course she's doing the work for the people. So um, uh, I gotta get her on my show, man. I hear so many great things about her. She would be quality. Um, so this paper, she's talking about debt for climate now, right? So debt for nature, because there's a lot of problems with debt for nature swaps. Um, and when you think about this, there's this idea of conservation being a very colonial activity, right? Um, you leave that piece of land alone um, because we value the nature more than, potentially more than your livelihood, which is very contentious. And in conservation, we face that issue often. And that's why we've learned so much that we have to do our stakeholder interviews. We have to really, it has to be grassroots conservation. Yes. And so, yeah. And uh, there was this paper talking about, um, you know, a debt for nature swap that happened. I think it's on a lake in Africa. I think it might've been Tanzania. And they had mangroves and they did a debt for nature swap. And in this swap, they agreed, the country got this financing, right? And in exchange, they said that they would stop people from harvesting wood from this mangrove swamp. Oh, pardon me. Whoa. No, no, no. <laughs> this mangrove forest. Right. And so. I'm not harvesting wood. Like, whoa. They were harvesting wood, apparently, in this mangrove forest. So if you go back um, into deep history, right, even before the colonizers came into that area, they used these mangrove um, um, poles to pole their boats. Wow. And they would sell these poles up and down the the delta. Like they would they would export poles to pole wow. boats. Oh. That would be export from this area. 
and they made their livelihood from it and they've been doing it sustainably well potentially sustainably but they've been doing it for so long that the the system that you know they were looking at this system saying this is nature and we must conserve nature it wasn't natural that system had been managed and and used by this group of people long before anybody had observed it and recorded yeah. it and so now you say we're going to do a debt for nature swap and we're going to you know stop people from using this area not really understanding the history not taking all these things into account and so this idea is what they call the commodification of nature or like making nature a commodity that you can sell mm -hmm. and the big problem that we have with commodities in so many instances when we think about sustainable sustainable development is that we don't factor in what that commodity actually costs you know gasoline nobody's calculating how much the carbon dioxide emitted from that gasoline should cost so when you go to the company you buy, you buy that gas you're not paying for the carbon emitted somebody else is going to pay for that in their lifestyle in their in their lived experience like us right in their hurricanes so, it's the same thing with this this these debt for nature swaps and so i'm gonna stop the monologue pretty soon just gonna talk about the debt for climate and then we can move back to blue economy and you can ask me questions so i can not take over your show <laughs> yeah man it's your show it's your episode um so death for climate was very interesting when when uh, Dr. Thomas proposed this because it's 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 tagging on to this idea of loss and damages, right? So really want these larger countries who the developed nations who you know had industry that emitted the carbon before we got a chance to get to the table and emit carbon and, and benefit from that. And now we recognize the bad parts and we, we're trying to really avoid emitting carbon. Um, and so it's really about them making payments to to kind of compensate for the challenges that we face. Um, in another paper, there was this talk because there's this other factor that really leans into this all and that's really going to influence how we develop our blue economy. And it's debt, debt from COVID. COVID, not just in the Bahamas, but, you know, in many small island developing states ha has increased national debt levels because people were trying to compensate for... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> People are trying to compensate, appreciate you, Mallory, uh, compensate for uh, losses to tourism, right? So, so much money was coming in from tourism. Now you have this borrowing to supplement these uh, balance sheets. And what is that going to cause people to do? Are we going to now sell land and start another hotel? Is that going to make us more likely to, you know, compromise our environment? Is it going to make us more, and us being all small island developing states, right. is it going to make us more prone to accepting? Um, ideas about uh, oil exploration in our waters. You know, what is this debt now going to, mm -hmm. how is that going to influence us? Because you think about um, these uh, restructuring programs that the IMF does, right? And you lose some of your sovereignty, you lose the ability to, to determine your course um, because you now have, it's been assessed. You're not able to pay off your debt. But coming here, you have to pay this debt off because we're an international community and that's how finance works. It works, and so yeah. You're going to have to make some changes. Uh, this paper was proposing that we ask China to forgive some debt because they hold so much sovereign debt around the world. They have the power to literally say, Oof, what if you were to just conserve this mangrove reef? I mean, this mangrove ecosystem as well as this, this, this offshore reef. And if you conserve that, we'll forgive your debt. And that, that takes the fisherman who is going to use that, that reef completely out of the conversation, right? Yeah. So, these are the nuances of these conversations that we have to really be aware of and we have to engage in this dialogue from the jump for mm -hmm. us to achieve the best outcome we can we can achieve yeah. um, and so that's really those thoughts are about funding for this blue economy so you, you can sell carbon credits which is a great opportunity for us you can appeal for debt for nature swaps debt for climate swaps um and then you can use those funds because here's the kicker i believe bahamian national debt is is on order of billions of dollars whereas Probably. yeah and i mean like tens of billions of dollars i mean significant funds and when you compare that to what we could gain i think uh barbara broadburst broad, broad bernard barbara bernard was um quoted in the tribune in the guardian two weeks ago that our carbon credit industry could be worth about 375 million dollars now we haven't i haven't investigated how she came to that number right but you know that's the number that's out there and you compare that $357 million, $75 million to the billions of dollars of debt we have, we have to look at our climate financing and our carbon credit sales as seed money in our mm -hmm. blue economy. 
as ways for us to expand this economy and expand it in two fashions. One that's environmentally friendly, one that's socially responsible. So, yeah, so so that's that's what I'm seeing happening right now. And I mm -hmm. think that that's the way that things need to move. Um, Definitely. Yeah. And, you know, and, and again, following along our conversation, discussion points that we agreed on um, with the carbon credits, I've actually had people approach me knowing that, you know, obviously I'm a marine biologist. I work in conservation. They're like, hey, can you tell us a bit more about carbon credits? And I'm just there like, I don't. I don't know why are you asking me this but it's really becoming this buzzword around the world and lately as you said like it was in the paper about two weeks ago in the bahamas and so it's really interesting to see the shift in people's mindsets like you have people who were not really interested in conservation not interested in the environment now tapping into this carbon credits thing and getting excited about it so can you tell some of our viewers and me because i really still don't have a full grasp of what it is but what exactly are carbon credits and how could the average bahamian maybe utilize them and the last part of your question is the key one. And that's <laughs> that's the key part it's of it, right? Social, yeah. Um, so this is the situation that we're in. Um carbon credits. Where is this carbon? Is one question, right? Mm -hmm. So this carbon uh, is is stored in the soils or in the sediment of your mangrove ecosystems and your, your seagrass ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Um there's less carbon stored in our terrestrial systems in the Bahamas because our soils don't develop that that deep layer of thick black material. They call that humus, that organic matter. That that would be where you store carbon on land or you store it in the trees. And so we right. don't have as many, you know, like a, a, the Amazon rainforest, for example, stores a ton of carbon in the live biomass. In the Bahamas, a lot of our, our vegetation is more stunted because a lot of our vegetation has been cut down before and had to grow back or our mangroves deal with very harsh conditions and they don't grow to be these huge forests like you have in India or mm -hmm. or elsewhere, right? And so a lot of the research on carbon credits was done in those places. And now we're applying these thoughts to the Bahamas. But in the Bahamas, our carbon is stored in the soil. And the carbon credits are valuable because we are trying to get the entire world to net zero, right? We're trying to get net zero is the idea that we are no longer adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. Um, yeah. The way to get to net zero is to reduce the amount of carbon you emit and then for the big emitters to invest in carbon capture yes. and this carbon capture is typically done through natural systems in the bahamas the two systems that are most likely to capture carbon would be mangrove systems mm -hmm. and your seagrass systems mangrove systems the ideas around carbon capture through them are more developed and the processes for reforesting mangroves are more developed in the bahamas as opposed to thinking about seagrass beds and you're so, even scared of seagrass. They're like, what's that dark patch? I'm like, it's the beautiful seagrass. Like, you're going to learn to love this. But I digress. <laughs> um, uh, I'll digress for a second, too. At, uh, at COP, I met this uh, student from University of Edinburgh who's working on technology to automate planting seagrasses. So you'd have a robot that goes out and collects the seagrass. And then I think you also have another robot that goes out and plants it. And so... <laughs> You know, these are the things, these are the next generation technologies we need to invest in because you're trying to figure out how do you generate this carbon credit at a low enough cost that you actually make a profit, right? Right. Um, so if we go into this just to continue mm -hmm. the whole net zero idea, we're committed. The, the world is trying to get to net zero and we're trying to limit our carbon emissions. And so countries will put out a, an NDC, a nationally determined contribution. And so this is, you know, we are going to reduce our carbon emissions by X amount this year. Mm -hmm. And so to meet that, you know, suppose they have a manufacturer who emitted more carbon than they were supposed to, right? Mm -hmm. That manufacturer can say, for, for example, come to the Bahamas and pay and say, well, when you plant out a mangrove um, uh, ecosystem, you plant out an acre, you store X amount of carbon. It's usually measured in tons, right? Mm -hmm. I will pay you to do that if I can claim that I caused that to happen, right? And so I will re remove, reduce my carbon emissions that I report by however many carbon, uh, tons of carbon I can pay for you to yeah. remove from the atmosphere. And so and that's would that how these- annually though? Pardon me? Is that something that is gonna be done on an annual basis? Cause I feel like a lot of people think that, oh, I'm just gonna have this mangrove in my backyard, right? And I let people pay me for this mangrove storing carbon. And it's almost kind of one of those things where 
when you even think of just planting mangrove seedlings, they're not they're not doing anything yet, right? But people are paying to have them planted in the hopes that this is going to count towards it. Because I have a very love-hate relationship with this whole offsets concept. Did my master's thesis on it? Mm, I'm a little iffy on it. So I always hate the idea of people thinking that it's better, at least when it comes to this, right? Oh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. No, like don't emit the carbon in the first place. But we're obviously too far gone. And I don't want to sound like one of those. I don't want to sound like I'm taking a side. This is not advocacy here. This is all informational people. But I do have a particular sort of feeling towards this whole carbon offsets idea, which is similar to what Bradley's kind of talking about. So I'm going to let you keep going. <laughs> then- no, it's, it's, it's key because, mm-hmm. you know, the offset thing, it's why would you encourage somebody to continue to emit, right? And you know what you're doing. We're going to just keep planting mangroves here. And then now, because and see, this is going to go into conservation colonialism. Now the countries that are underdeveloped are forced to stay underdeveloped because they're paying us to keep planting mangroves and keep not developing our country so that we can keep making these conservation areas that are benefiting the world, but it's stifling the country and the growth of what this country could be doing because another country is too selfish. So let me step up the soapbox. No, it's it's real. It is R E A L real because <laughs> real talk. Don't, don't, don't make me do it. Don't make me do it. Um, <laughs> it's real because I was all right. So, just a digression. I was on the train one night, and they have a lot of uh, fossil fuel, uh, you know, wells, oil wells, up north in Scotland. And this this guy sat across from me, and I didn't know him from Adam, and we had a discussion. And I tell him I study sustainable development and, and he like, he changes his, you know, the way he's sitting for a little bit. And I and I, I go, oh, you know about fossil fuel? I mean, you know about sustainable development and you have an opinion. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he goes on to tell me he's an engineer and they engineer all of the wells uh, that they dig up there. And he's like, you know, but the thing is, what we can do is direct air capture and we'll capture this carbon dioxide and then we'll push it right back down into the into the earth. And then, that, and then we'll cap that well off and then that'll be that. And I was just like, huh. Like a bomb. And you believe this. And what's scary is that there are not just individuals, but entire industries that are invested in that idea. Mm-hmm. And the idea has not been proven yet. Right? So you have anything to chase what, what will make sense to fit with what they want to do. Because so, even the terms the of US, development, so no, that's okay. And not to, not to hate on anyone who studies this or is called a sustainable developer, but I thought it was so interesting that one of the lectures that we had in our course back in my master's um, said sustainable development is an oxymoron. There is no way to develop sustainably because either way you are damaging the ecosystems, you're damaging whatever habitat you choose to develop on. So all you can say is less... Um, least amount of damage possible it's, it's nothing sustainable about development which which is sad to hear right and i mean because we all think it's such a great buzzword but sustainable development is an oxymoron i said it, it really is you know don't attack me people it really <laughs> and that's and what you said like, but i'm happy because you are very conscious and you're very environmentally focused so that's great oh and i and i question life every day like <laughs> <laughs> like i question like what are we doing here why where are we going in class we were talking about uh you know, what are these companies doing these life cycle analysis, you know, saying how, how much carbon are we using to make a pair of shoes, right? And Adidas or, or whichever company is making shoes out of recycled goods, right? Recycled materials. Mm-hmm. But if you think about it, we have enough shoes. <laughs> like, we don't actually need more shoes. Never. <laughs> like, what? Oh, man. The, the people who, who watch the show are good people, FYI. I know. Stacey's um, actually going to be on my next episode. So excited. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, thank God I went first. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we do have yeah. two questions, uh, just to segue a bit. Uh, I know my aunt Denise asked, asked, which country is leading the way in reducing carbon emissions? Which is actually a very interesting question, because we all know who making the most. <laughs> That's a good question, especially mm-hmm. since just just the other day we were talking about carbon footprints i i don't have a number of a, a name for the country that's in the lowest emissions right but apparently greenland has some of the lowest carbon emissions per capita right so you would analyze somebody's lifestyle in greenland and you know the way that you have a, a person or to, to reduce your per capita emissions it has to do with public transportation it has to do with how do you heat a house mm-hmm. how do you produce energy so all of these things are not necessarily 
it's very difficult for an individual to make enough decisions to reduce their carbon consumption on their own. It has to be a collective move, you know? So in Greenland, apparently they're able to, their their social systems allow them to have very small carbon footprint. But then I had to stop them in that class. I had to say, hey, how does Greenland make their money? How do they fund their um, infrastructure so that they could have this super green lifestyle? They sell oil. (laughs) That's an oil country. Greenland, I believe, is the country that has one of the most substantial sovereign wealth funds. You know, the money that they earn from oil, they invest it in this this trust fund and, and it's available for the country's development, you know. So how are we accounting for this? You know, what what does it mean to live a green lifestyle? Well, you know, everybody uses a different measuring stick. We ain't we ain't agree on no measuring stick yet. So Greenland ain't even that green. I hear they look like Iceland. Like they have the wrong name. <laughs> and they run, That's so they interesting. And I never thought about crazy, that. Back in twenty twelve, I was an undergrad and my roommate did a study abroad in, in Amsterdam, right, for Dutch Shell. And they had to do a presentation on how you would develop oil fields as the ice retreats. Literally, a presentation on how to capitalize on, you know, the ice Melting. fields, the ice retreating, so you could dig and drill more oil. You know, so there's intelligent people investing time, energy, and money to figure out how to continue going Take the advantage. same direction we're in. And so yeah. the only way to counteract that is to do the same in other directions. Oh, and so this whole concept about carbon credits and debt for climate and, you know, all of the work we do is to support that push because we have to, you know, we're like a, a startup business trying to bootstrap our way to success while these other well-funded entities are doing their best to maintain the status quo, you know? It's, yeah. yeah. So we do have a, a question, or is this more of a comment from Mallory? Okay, so is debt relief later usable for putting funds towards management and enforcement of protected areas or restoration of mangroves, wetlands, and coral reefs? So I would say that it depends on the way that this is structured. So mm-hmm. um, it depends on it depends on us. We everything that we have happening around us, we should be really riding bicycles. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens around us depends on what we do, um, mm-hmm. and so I think that. There is a way for us to make that happen. Um, it, it it just it, it it depends on individuals being a part of the conversation and working towards that. Um, but I would argue that that is how we should structure this. And to to continue on that thought, we need to find ways to involve Bahamians in this economy at all levels. We need yeah. to have our finance gurus. So we have many. I mean brilliant minds who work in finance at the Bahamas, who could be marketing these these investments for us. They're voluntary investments that people can make. I There was somebody talking about a sustainable clothing brand where you sell a piece of clothing and the person pays an extra bit of money to offset the carbon that was used to produce the clothing. And that money is used to fund planting of mangroves, but it could also be used to fund the monitoring of these mangrove areas. And yeah. then you ask yourself, who is gonna do that monitoring? Well, it should be Bahamians. Yeah. There should, be a class should be the people on the ground. on environmental monitoring. And this is an idea I, I, I got from a colleague of mine, Nikita Shield Rule. You know, nice. um, she's got a lot of great ideas, boy. You know, mm-hmm. this is these are the ways. Into, pardon me? Yeah, tap in there. I keep trying to get her on the show. <laughs> it's all about us, you know, it's all about everybody doing their part mm-hmm. and recognizing yeah. people for their strength and moving it forward. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So these are the ways that we have to, we have to, we, it's, this is one boat that we all on, right? Yeah. Everybody's doing something different. You know, you have an investor coming in from Dubai and, you know, they have some funds that they store in the Bahamas. You know, why not convince them to allocate 5% of their investment for the year into a vehicle that's not necessarily going to produce huge returns. It's going to produce you a little truck along return. But at the same time, it is making the, the fisheries industry in the Bahamas more sustainable. So you could feel better about when you fly down here and you burn all that CO2 to come here to manage your investments. You know, you why not? Mm-hmm. But it's an ecosystem. Yeah, invest into this protected area management. You know, it's it's we have a lot of protected areas coming on stream. We need a lot of money to manage them effectively. Effectively. So. And it has to be something where we invest for a, a later return. So when we invest on in our environment, we need to think about, you know, what is the best way for us to spend those funds? If we create an individual who can go out and and do this monitoring work and now they get to remain in their community, right? Um, And they get to invest in their community. And now you have, uh, you know, support for other industry that's happening in that area. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's, it's, 
you know, we can't just keep letting nature slip away and become the playground of, of, of people who have free time. Yeah. You know, we have to in, in integrate ourselves into these systems where we have Bahamian livelihoods that depend on these systems and that causes them to fight for these systems and support those systems. And so we think about the blue economy and conservation, we have to, we have to make it all one thing. You have to figure yeah. out how to get your second homeowner and your, you know, fifth generation resident to see things not the same way, but very similarly, and to, to fight for this goal together. together. Yeah. And that's what I think is so interesting about just even the title of this episode, right? The blue economy and conservation. We have to be very, very conservation and sustainability minded as we try out these new things. And as we start incorporating the literal environment and our natural resources in all of these other great ideas that we're having to make our country more stable and to help our country grow and become more sustainably developed. <laughs> Like, what are we trying to sustain, you know? I mean, are I we trying to sustain, like, who could do John Canoe if ain't no jobs here? Who could do John Canoe if ain't nobody, if, if your house was washed away and you prefer to go and move to Florida as opposed to living here in, sure. in Nassau? You know, May Iguana's gonna... the move. Pardon me? May Iguana's the move. They rising. It is that's the only island that's on the fault that's actually rising and huh. where everyone else is going to probably sink. I know I heard that. Anyone listening who knows what I'm talking about? Please validate what I just said. I'm pretty sure I was told, you know, the way that, you know, that plate, the continental plate, Mayaguana mm -hmm. is near the fault. And as sea level happens and just over the years, Mayaguana is the only island that seems to be kind of rising, you know, over time. So we should all be trying to get some property on Mayaguana. Tell them Mayaguanian, May, what are they called? Mayaguana Islanders. <laughs> we come in. Go with it. The, uh, you could, you could be, you could use the, you could say the locals. Um, <laughs> no, don't say it. The Out Islanders. No. I was called an Out Islander when I was visiting Grand Bahama and I really felt away. I know. I was like, y'all just call me an Out Islander. Y'all are the Out Islanders. Like, you come to our island. I say, Lord, let me not get gang in Freeport. <laughs> Perception is reality, fam. Perception right. is reality. Oh, I love that Mallory saying, or we can move to Mount Alberni. <laughs> <laughs> the great for Como real. hill for real and and you think about it for example uh you had princess cruise lines was coming through and they were gonna visit cat island and a lot of the questions were about you know if you're gonna come are you gonna bring enough trash bins you're gonna you're gonna come in you're gonna make a a a, a bathroom for these people on the beach wow, are you going strange. to you know and and what happens when you have exuma for example you remember when exuma started developing and uh then crime rates rose in Exuma and, you know, all of the things that follow this development. I forget which development it was, mm. but there's these things that happen along with development and we've seen it happen so many oh, times. Like societal things. Yeah. 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 yeah I mean, look at NASA. We're so developed. I feel like there, like you're saying, there's a direct correlation between being developed and very congested and crime. Like, direct correlation. There has to be, I'm sure there might be some studies out there, but there definitely is like, when there's too much buildings, too many people crammed in one place, not enough opportunity for everyone, not enough equal opportunity. Why do you do that face? Because I'm going to so I'm going to I'm going to be a devil's show. advocate on that one real quick. No, Bill Bradley, that's your show. No, if you ready, I wanted you to finish. <laughs> I down. I down. I'm off the soapbox. <laughs> I mean, because when you think about that, right? You think about this whole sustainable development thing, but meanwhile, my goal is to live, you know, on some island. Uh, and have as few neighbors as possible and mm -hmm. um, just be free, right? But that's not good for the environment. Why Why would I go out there and, 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 and defile a pristine piece of land and put a house there when I could easily go and rent an apartment somewhere in an urban setting where, you know, I don't have to expend any new carbon for me to clear this land or, or build this, this, this home. I'm not a... I'm not going to be interfering with any of the wildlife in the area. I'm not going to be adding any new trash or any new pollutants to the to the air. You know, one of the arguments about sustainability is that the, the most sustainable thing for us to do is to put all humans in a city, in one big city, and have all of the, the... So then we have all of our pollution in one place, and you take advantage of economies of scale in treating that waste. And you, you for example, imagine a schoolhouse that has 30 students and a schoolhouse that has 100 students. The one with 30 students still needs to have electricity. electricity it still water. needs to have a, a wall out front. It still needs to have a teacher and a principal and a janitress or a janitor, or you need to have a 
you know, you have all these different things that are needed. Yeah. But why not just ship everybody to, to one boarding school in the middle of town and have all of these things streamlined, have the the the, the big farm for the school right there. So you don't have to do, you know, you have this whole green um, ethos going on and then you limit your, your, your waste of energy, et cetera. But now you're sacrificing culture because there's nothing like going to an out island. And I remember being in Gregory town and, and the kids running home from school for lunch because, you know, <laughs> and it's like, you, are you going to sacrifice having these children grow up in their, in their well, home you clearly want to. experience? <laughs> so, but, but it's less sustainable to have a school in, in every settlement than it is to have all this, you know, everybody in one place when you think about it. <clears throat> so this is a, that's an interesting topic. And I feel like that's worth its whole own episode, right? Like just sustainable development, pros and cons. How can get you back for that one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely hurts to think about sustainable development sometimes. So, like, uh, you have to give up things that you love sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because we are coming up on an hour already. I always feel like your episodes are never long enough. Um, but I do, we can still just start shifting gears. Would you have any sort of like advice for viewers who are watching or who are listening later on ways that they can probably in their own way, be a part of the movement, maybe lessen their carbon footprint and maybe even start considering ways to get involved in the blue economy. Are there resources out there? Can they get in touch with you about it? I know you are our climate change ambassador to the Bahamas right now. Yeah, I didn't want to say it earlier, but please know that Bradley is the climate change ambassador for the Bahamas. So if you do have inquiries about things, his email is up there. You can also check him out on Instagram. He also has like a photo Instagram. He takes really great photos. So do that too. But yeah, do you have any advice for our viewers on any of those various topics that I just threw out at you? Thank you for reminding me to uh, talk about the climate ambassador program. Um, it was a real honor. Uh, you know, um, all credit to... Uh, Director Newbold and you know Prime Minister Davis, um, and then you know I could name all the people because if we think about this, the the reason I'm a climate ambassador is to add numbers to the to the to the army. Basically, you know, the goal is for us to have as many people in the Bahamas considering these things and looking for the next thing to do. Um, just as a rewind, at COP, I remember at lunch I sat down and. I looked for people who look like me, right? So I sit down and I see this lady who, she looked a little bit like my grandmother, you know? And I, I'm like, okay, I'll sit here. And then next to her is this lady in her forties, Afro out, like all about business. Then another lady, and the lady looked like my grandma, Afro as well. Uh, and then with them was a younger woman, um, maybe, you know, 19, 20, uh, uh, black. And then they had uh, a person, I think she looked like she was Latino descent, right? I sit down and all of them from Barbados. One is the Minister of Finance from Barbados. One is the Climate Ambassador and hey. one is one of the youth delegates. And the way that they were working at that conference, there was no time for me to ask them a bunch of questions. Wow. I remember like one snippet was that, I think her name is Marsha Cattle. She said, you know, our goal is to get some of these infrastructure investments off of the government uh, budget, right? That was, And she was trying to find ways to do that. And that was why she was at COP. Wow. This is what we need. This is what we need, empowered people who are professionals, who found what they like to do and are applying it to the present question. So something that I do anytime I have something new coming across me is I just go online, on like YouTube or on SoundCloud. And University I search, of YouTube. I like, exactly. I go climate change and human resources, climate change and finance, climate change and uh, gender equality. And you literally, if you want to figure out how to get involved in something, or, or figure out, you know, what's the state of the industry in your industry as it relates to climate change. You know, you talk about climate change and health. Mm -hmm. You just go out there and you you get to the information that's out there because it. There's another quote: is the the, the future is intersectional, right? Intersectionality is when you have one of the big things was like a intersection of racism and gender rights, or the intersection of sustainable development and and uh, environmentalism, for example, mm -hmm. right? So everything is intersectional, climate change and finance. It's it's all about, you know, where do we come against each other? We are all professionals, we have our silos, but we all have to interact. And that's what the economy is about. The economy is about interactions, right? So right. the future is intersectional. It's all about where do we meet each other and how do we work together? Um, hmm. How do, yeah. 
trying to remember the rest of your questions. I don't know if you want to say something. Oh, yeah. So we actually do have one more question in the audience. Um, we'll see if you can answer it from Rhea Fitzwilliam on YouTube. Do you know which houseplant should I get that is better for the air? I know I've seen posts like this before. I'm not sure if you know some off the top of your head that are good to keep inside your house. This is a TED talk that I saw long ago um, yeah. about this guy in India. Um, they were talking about how to sustainably manage air quality in large office buildings. And they had identified, I think, three plants that were, you know, because it's also you want to have a plant that's easy to maintain the air, but you have to trade offs, right? This plant also has to just be easy to maintain. You mm -hmm. want a plant that's going to live. And so they said mother's tongue was a good one. You know, the one that comes up like that in your uh, ornamentals. If you Google it, you should be able to find it. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm a Google. Yeah. And so, I yeah, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't be able to directly recommend too many plants, but I would say um, there is information out there. And this was Mother's Tongue was one of the ones they, they suggested. But that's an interesting question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, definitely. And so as we wrap up this wonderful episode, I feel like I didn't get all the information out of you that I wanted, but there's always next season. We can always bring you back again. Thank you for not cooking rice this time. Um, but if you have just a I nice... I feel that don't worry. <laughs> Jeez. But so I always like to ask my guests this season, you know, I know a lot of times, depending on the type of work you do, you always have these like monumental or these significant life lessons from your particular day-to-day -day work or whatever you do. So do you have a lesson learned that from your work or even your research or your time in school that you'd like to share with viewers? I know last time you said, do what you can now. And that's stuck with me since. Obviously, because I just remembered it. <laughs> yeah, wow. <clears throat> and I, I wish I had idea. some sort of, yeah, some big idea. But uh, the one recent idea I had was, uh, oh, man, yeah, we were sitting in this class. And, you know, just like you say, in, in sustainable development, you'll be like going down this road, being like, this is how we're going to save the world. And then you go, well, but what about, you know, we installing all of these solar panels, but what about the people in China that have to make them? And what about the carbon emissions that they have to, you know, release that we want to blame them for? Or what about the work conditions? You know, we, we're getting this cheap solar panel, but did the person who made this solar panel have the chance to live a decent life? You know, wow. how do you feel about that? So it says, uh, so the, the thing is uh, sitting with cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when you have, you hold in this idea, but you, you live in a life that don't fit with that idea. You know, like I would love to be completely green, but anybody who turns on a light in the Bahamas, you turn on your fridge, you burn in fossil fuels and you are part of the problem, right? Because that's how we make our electricity. Yeah. You, you have all these instances where you're trying to move towards this goal, but you, you could see where you're not really meeting the mark. And in some instances, you can make yourself comfortable with where you are and say, okay, no, it's okay that I'm doing this. And, you know, that's fine because, you know, we have to do this. We have to live, blah, 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 blah. And you justify it. You get rid of the cognitive dissonance. You get rid of that little tension where you feel like what you're doing is somewhat wrong or you have to question yeah. what you're doing. But we have to have that tension. We have to live with the tension of wondering if what we're doing is right and we have to always question what we do because the minute you start making yourself feel like what you do is okay every time and you you stop really wondering like am i doing the right thing here the minute you stop doing that you you lose your power to, to find the right thing to do you know so we have to learn to sit with these questions and feel comfortable having these questions go into discussions knowing we're not going to find the answer every time we're just trying to get somewhere better we ain't yet to the end you know it's all building upon, um, what do they say, the shoulders of our ancestors or our forefathers? Definitely. Every day. But, but also, just for people who might be like me, very much an overthinker, don't sit with it too long. <laughs> Have some time to do something else, you know, get outside in the environment and actually be, be grateful for the air quality that we have now. Our country is pretty good, I think, with our air quality compared to other ones. I know I have my brother that lives in a different country. I don't know if I should call the name, but even before we had to wear masks for COVID, there were some days and some weeks where they had to wear masks because the smog was just so bad. And he was just like, so wearing masks really ain't, ain't new for him. So be grateful, you know, like take take time and go outside and really appreciate what we have here in the Bahamas, appreciate our national resources, be an advocate for it too. I mean, be inspired, share the word, share the, share the news, learn more about what you can do, small steps to a big change. And our last and final question for our lovely guest, who is someone in the sector, whether it's local or international, that inspires you and why? And don't say me, I don't count. I know I inspire you. <laughs> 
It's, it's true. It's true. Um, <laughs> all right. Right now, you know who I'll say? Kelly Ashley Armstrong. Because when yeah. she went to Columbia and she was doing the climate work, and I was just like, what is climate work? Like, I measure plants. But that's what I know. Yeah. <laughs> I go outside and I measure. I pull up some soil and I look to see how much carbon is in it. You trying to tell me that this woman is doing meteorology and that seems so crazy and she was one of the pioneers i feel in some of this work uh, another individual would be charles hamilton mm. um and he pioneers a lot of this um adaptation as far as health right yeah. it's one of the biggest questions we have in the bahamas and it's one of our going to be one of our bigger infrastructure expenses in the future mm-hmm. we need to have purpose-built buildings that that facilitate our adaptation to the changes we see in and so not only that, we need a purpose-built workforce. We need to yeah. have skills within country to address these challenges. So those two, um, I would say, you know, when you have a pair that you look up to, those are pairs that I look up to, yeah. Definitely, I mean, I actually, unfortunately, I've recently started hearing about Mr. Hamilton. So I definitely look forward to hearing more about him and maybe even getting him on the show as well. I've definitely had more Kelly more. already, such an inspiration especially just being a female, right? First climate change professional, Bahamian, so inspirational. We have so many other amazing Bahamians doing amazing things. I got a finger, one more. I got a last one. Last then I'm gonna say Alicia Wallace because uh, the, gender, the gender equality mm-hmm. question and the and, and it's just generally equality. Um, one of the sustainable development goals is to reduce inequalities between countries and individuals, right? Income inequalities set people up for challenges. They make it so that it's difficult for you to adapt to hurricanes. It's difficult for you to adapt to climate change or even COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And those income inequalities are sometimes the result of gender inequality. And those inequalities set people up to take advantage or to abuse the environment. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult for you to take care of your environment when you cannot take care of yourself. And so having people that represent these questions, these, these challenges that, you know, not only call out problems in our society, but also suggest solutions, I think it's very important. So oh, that's the last part I say, yeah. Definitely. And I think just in the Bahamas, that is an issue that I think a lot of people are not aware of. And I probably got to get her on the show too, because I think it's it's a very important topic um, in the patriarchy. But I'll leave it there. <laughs> and it's, I think we just got to say it until it's a normal thing to think about. Because <laughs> over here, trust me, gender equality is, it, 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 yeah. What that is. Standard. Yeah. So so we're going to wrap it up for another episode. Thank you so much, Bradley, for being on the show again. I think you're definitely going to be one of my regulars on this show. You always have so many amazing things to say. You definitely inspire me. So keep doing all the amazing things that you're doing. Do well in that master's. I know it gets rough. I know it gets lonely, but we all believe in you. You got this. And we're excited to have you come back home. Thank you to all my viewers who've been watching and riding this wave with us. Siren Sundays, season five, episode six. What more can I say? Thank you so much for watching. And I hope to see you all tune in next episode. Appreciate you guys. Appreciate you, Lashanti. Please keep up the good work.